Prior to the 20th century, the main options for becoming a parent were pregnancy achieved through intercourse or by adoption. This all changed, however, with the successful birth of the first baby born using in vitro fertilisation, or IVF, in 1978. Since then, assisted reproduction technologies, or ARTs, have expanded to include artificial insemination, embryo or gamete donation, mitochondrial donation, intrafallopian transfer of gametes or zygotes, and various forms of surrogacy, and I'm sure I've missed a few there. But most of these techniques were not available to women with absolute uterine factor infertility, which refers to women who are unable to get pregnant because they do not have a functioning uterus. For these women, adoption or surrogacy were the only options for parenthood. But in the 2000s, researchers started looking at transplantation as a possible solution for women without wombs who wish to have a biologically related child and experience pregnancy themselves. Sweden led the way here, with the first successful uterus transplantations leading to the first live birth reported in 2014. Since then, programs for uterus transplantation have developed around the world, including in Australia. Uterus transplantation brings together the field of ARTs with that of organ and tissue transplantation, both of which are ethical minefields for various reasons. Associate Professor Mayanna Lotz from the Philosophy Department at Macquarie University is here to help me think through some of these challenges. As well as being an internationally recognised scholar on the ethics of uterus transplantation, Mayanna is ethics advisor to the first trial of uterus transplantation in Australia and chair of their data and security monitoring board. She's also a member of the International Society of Uterus Transplantation Transplantation Ethics Committees and a member of the Macquarie University Ethics and Agency Research Centre. Welcome, Mayanna. Can you tell us what first got you interested in this topic? Yes, hi Wendy, thank you for having me. Yeah, I've been working in the area of philosophy and ethics of the family and reproduction for most of my career and I've been particularly interested in the allegations around the moral value of biological and genetic relatedness between parents and children and um, started with my first co-authored publication with Neil Levy way back in 2004, I think it was published, around cloning, questioning what the moral foundations were for this alleged desire for biologically related offspring. Um, so we were questioning what that moral foundation actually looked like. I also work on adoption ethics and on child welfare more broadly. And as a feminist scholar too, I'm just very interested and concerned around questions of the influence of social conditions on women's autonomy, in particular in the area of reproductive decision making. And so when I first became aware of uterus transplantation around 2006 or so, I was really struck by how it brought together so many of my different interests and it was kind of very compelling for me and irresistible for me to go into that area and of course then I had the opportunity with you to supervise our PhD student Ruby Katsanos who did a thesis on the ethics of uterus transplantation and we then co-authored one of the first papers on ethics of uterus transplantation so yeah I've been, I've been sort of able I was able through that to then go into this area more deeply and I've been working in it since then. Yeah, that's, that's great background. Thanks, Mayanna. My, my experience was different. I came to it from transplantation ethics, so I've kind of got the other side of the coin there, reproduction. I didn't have the, you know, the, the chops that you've got in reproductive ethics, but I was interested in the procedure as, a, as an example of transplantation of a composite tissue. We were a good complementary team there. <laughs> in your paper, which we'll discuss in detail a bit later on, the public funding of uterus transplantation, your critique in that paper focuses on the broader societal implications of, of publicly funding uterus transplantation 
transplantation. But before we turn to those, for listeners who may not be familiar with the with the whole notion of uterus transplantation, could you give us just a quick overview of, of some of the main ethical issues before we get to the broader societal ones, but the ones more for the, for the person contemplating the transplant and the donors? Yeah, sure. I mean, there are a lot of ethical issues, but I guess in terms of the initial ones we would highlight, there would be the fact that for many people, this is seen as quite controversial since it's really focused on the fulfilment of preference instead of the fulfilment of uncontestable medical need. So the fact that it's a quality of life transplant rather than a life-saving transplant initially means that it you know, is in the area of more contested um, forms of medical treatment. And many people do argue that it's a form of treatment grounded in meeting a, a preference or a desire specifically for the experience of gestation and for a biologically related child. So that whole you know, debate over what obligations we have to fulfil preferences and how quality of life transplants sit alongside life-saving transplants is obviously one of the main ones. But also, more specifically, we've got a range of concerns around, and we had a range of concerns around safety and efficacy. Would this work? At the time that we wrote that first paper, we said that we you know, it was very risky and it was unlikely to produce many offspring or something along those lines. So the rate of rejection of the graft was a real concern around the efficacy and safety of this procedure and the immunosuppression impacts and the compatibility of immunosuppression that a woman has to, you know, undergo while gestating, the impact of immunosuppression on the developing fetus. These were all areas falling under that label of safety and efficacy concerns. We did also, right from the start, raise concerns around expectation Management. And early on, we were worried about what the pregnancy experience might be like for women and the fact that the uterus wouldn't be innovated would mean that the sensory uh, experience for women would be quite different from a non-uterus transplanted gestation experience. And we were concerned there that that might lead to regret or uh, lack of attachment to the fetus or to the uterus at least. And, you know, just not being able to manage people's high expectations given that they were coming to the surgery largely motivated by a desire to have the experience of pregnancy. Both the body's capacity to tolerate the graft and for that to be managed effectively and safely, but also the psychological and emotional attachment of the recipient towards the graft. And of course, finally to mention now, I mean, there are other issues around the fact that it was, you know, initially and still really research rather than a clinical form of treatment, challenges and concerns around informed consent that we raised in that paper too, around whether women would be you know, genuinely coming to this opportunity with full autonomy and freedom from social coercion and a sense of needing to do whatever they can to fulfil the ideals and expectations of womanhood. So being able to ensure that recipients and donors were fully informed about the risks and making those decisions in an uncoerced fashion were things that certainly came up as the initial set of ethical concerns, I would say. And now we're nearly 10 years down the track from the first Swedish successful transplants. Do you think those concerns have been adequately addressed and managed in the trials to date? Yeah, I do want to emphasise these are still research trials in most places rather than uterus transplant being rolled out as clinical you know, treatment for the moment at least and I would say that for the most part these risks and concerns have been really well managed actually in the trials and certainly in the ones that I'm familiar with. So we're now at reported you know getting close to the 100 cases mark. There's always a lag between the reporting of a uterus transplant as well as the embryo transfers and pregnancies so it's always difficult to come up with a clear figure 
of at, at exactly any time point, but we are getting somewhere between you know eighty five, ninety to one hundred now of like transplants. Li- transplants or live yes. births? No transplants. Transplants. We're getting right. close to forty live births right. across the world, across the world, not in Australia, and so that's a lot. And so I think it's fair to say that safety and efficacy has really been established now. We really haven't seen the kinds of problems around physiological graft rejection. It does happen, but there are very few that are reported. Offspring health concerns, I didn't mention those before, I don't think, but we did flag up You know what would be the potential impacts on the developing fetus. And although what we're seeing predominantly around the world is a birth at occurring at around 35 to 36 weeks, where the goal is to carry out a cesarean section delivery at 37 weeks, so the children are, there is a slight preterm or early birth scenario, but we're not seeing in any of these children any of the potential developmental delays that can come with early birth. So the eldest child is now somewhere around nine-ish and there aren't any problems identified there. I should say that in terms of the efficacy, we're looking at around about, in terms of success of the transplant itself, success rates in the vicinity of 60%, give or take, and then from the transplanted uterus to a successful live birth, we're also seeing rates of success at around in the 60s. 60%. So it's actually looking pretty sound and efficacious. That's interesting compared to how long it took for IVF to get anywhere near those rates. Obviously, these are very selected population who you would you know expect to succeed if anybody could it's not a, it's not an unselected population but still at their, their rates that the early IVF pioneers could only dream of. That's right but of course we're piggybacking off the success of the IVF developments when we're doing those embryo transfers into the transplanted uterus. So yeah in terms of those things that's all checking out quite well. In terms of mismatched expectations that I flagged up before we really have not seen any evidence in any cases at all of women reporting any kind of suppressed or lowered affective experience of the gestation experience. I mean for most of these women they've got no alternative. They do have a sensation of a physiological experience of being pregnant, that it may not be exactly the same as what a woman in a non, with a non-transplanted uterus would experience. That's just not something they're aware of nor care about. So they're you know, having uh, wonderful experiences of pregnancy that they've wanted for so long and they're not being affected negatively by the increased monitoring that we do need to do with the uterus transplant pregnancy, which was another concern we flagged up actually early on in that paper was that this would be quite an intrusive pregnancy experience. No issues around acceptance of the graft. One thing just to highlight that this is an ephemeral transplant, so because of the need for immunosuppression, the uterus won't, uh, at this point, on any protocols, remain in a woman's body beyond five years or two births, whichever comes first. So I think that factors into the fact that we're not seeing rejection issues of the kind that we've seen in hand transplants and that we were worried about in the early days. The main challenges that we are seeing that we did anticipate are around the impacts on the donors in particular, which perhaps we didn't see so much around them, but those are very tricky. The donor recoveries, the surgery is very large for a donor and there are issues that I can talk to later if you like about recovery for donors. In terms of recipients, yeah, the, the, the issues around informed consent and the possible concerns around women's freedom to 
choose this in an uncoerced manner, it's just extremely difficult really to ascertain the extent to which these women's choices are fully freely made. I mean, no choices are made in a vacuum, right? Yeah, that, that raises the whole issue of reproductive autonomy, which you mentioned in the, in the earlier sort of catalogue of some of the ethical issues. What do we mean by this, by this term, reproductive autonomy, in relation to uterus transplantation? Yeah, I mean, most broadly, we think of, uh, we conceptualise reproductive autonomy as being something like an entitlement to exercise one's capacities of choice and of control over one's reproductive decisions, whether to reproduce, how, when, how often, who with, etc. So that's the sort of standard understanding of reproductive autonomy. But I think the kind of analysis that I've favoured, which I've referred to as a broader socio-moral analysis of reproductive autonomy, asks also about the wider social conditions in which women are making their reproductive decisions and not just women but my primary focus would be on women and a willingness to sort of interrogate the preferences and desires as to what informs them and also the existence of alternative procreative modalities and the way in which those are or are not supported for women's and couples decision making. Reproductive autonomy in this context I think does mean having an eye to the support and also protection of the capacity to make fully informed and voluntary and uncoerced decisions about whether to access a treatment like uterus transplantation, which is extremely intensive and resource intensive as well as physiologically demanding. Yeah, you've got the IVF, which a lot of people find in itself uh, in, yes. in itself quite overwhelming, exactly. coupled with major surgery. That takes us nicely onto the specific topic of your paper. And in there, you, you investigate four areas or four issues that are raised by the potential public funding of uterus transplantation and the first you, you describe as norm legitimation. Can you just tell us a bit about this and how that's relevant to uterus transplantation? Yep so that paper was the fourth actually in a series of papers uh, to and fro between myself and Stephen Wilkinson and Nicola Williams which was specifically focused on the question of the public funding of uterus transplantation not on uterus transplantation more generally and so the worry that I had raised and to which they had responded and this paper then again responds to is the worry that having a state publicly fund this form of infertility treatment would be potentially perpetuate and legitimise certain problematic norms that we would think as feminists especially, are problematic and potentially oppressive norms around three key areas that I would try to summarise quickly for you. So norms around pronatalism, which is essentially a kind of valorisation of having children and, a, and an idea that to become a parent is, is necessary for the enjoyment of a fully flourishing and good life. So pronatalist norms can be very oppressive in making people feel that they must you know, pursue any means available to have children, for example. Second set of norms are identified to be essentialist norms that fundamentally tie seek or seek to tie womanhood and femininity to activities like conceiving and gestating and even natural delivery and mothering of children. And then thirdly, geneticist norms that have been identified in the literature and in my paper, which are norms that accord a sort of special and sacrosanct importance to both an individual's genetic composition and their genetic attributes, but also to genetic relatedness between parents and children. And so these norms, although it might seem quite surprising in this day and age of such diverse families, these norms are, are really quite persistent and 
strong. And it's just a real concern that if we have a state actually providing and allocating public funds towards the use of a technology like uterus transplantation, that we're sending a potentially problematic message to women and to people about the importance of having children that it's justified to go to extreme lengths and utilise a lot of public monies and resources in the pursuit of a form of infertility treatment of this kind, especially when there are alternatives available that don't meet all of the desires bound up with uterus transplantation, but do enable parenthood. I think it's really useful kind of unpacking those norms. I was very struck a few years ago, I was having a, you know, a conversation with, a, with an acquaintance who is a, a single woman who has no children and I just mentioned something about Australia being really pro-natalist and she lit up because it's, this was actually recognised. It was, you know, I mean, she'd felt it her whole life, this kind of pressure, but to actually label these things and bring them out into the open I think is really useful. I like the way you've got the three, the three different norms, they're all kind of interacting. You just mentioned the money. <laughs> I haven't seen a dollar figure attached to uterus transplantation, but I imagine it's very expensive given the surgery and the follow-up treatment and the IVF. And of course, any expensive medical intervention raises issues of justice, both in terms of direct costs and then opportunity costs, what, what we could have spent the money on instead. Can you talk us through your approach to thinking about issues of justice in relation to the funding of uterus transplantation? Yeah, uh, look, I think that the questions of justice are particularly difficult around uterus transplantation. They're very complicated and I've actually found my own views shifting somewhat, especially as demand uh, for uterus transplantation increases and also born out of my own empirical research, a study that I did with 100 young participants a couple of years ago, which is going to be published next year, which just really highlighted the extent to which there is such widespread public support of what I identify in that forthcoming work as a kind of liberal, uh, procreative liberty, a valuing of procreative liberty, and of anti-paternalism, a desire to support people's entitlement to seek whatever means they want, to have whatever children they want. So my, my views have been shifting from the initial emphasis for me on this worry about, for example, norm legitimation, to being more centred around questions of equality of opportunity of access. And I do now feel quite concerned about the idea that we would make this technology, if we're going to make it available, that we would actually require it to be privately funded, thereby making it available only to those who could afford it. But certainly, to step back a little, I was really concerned about the way in which the argument that it was unjust not to offer public funding, the argument was made that it was unjust not to offer public funding because in doing so we would be sacrificing the immediate interests and needs of certain women for the sake of this long-term achievement of attitudinal change. And my kind of approach to thinking about justice issues involved, amongst other things, to ask which interests and needs are in scope here when we're thinking about who should carry the burdens and who has entitlements to protection from coercive influences and so on. And so, you know, their focus that I was responsible to was a narrow focus just looking at the immediate, very immediate needs and interests of those women who wanted access to uterus transplantation and wanted it publicly available, whose wishes would then be denied according to my account. What wasn't in scope in that justice evaluation was the longer term well-being and interests of women and also the needs, the immediate needs and interests of, for example, children needing to be adopted and so on. So to take a wider lens in thinking about justice issues, both in terms of who is in scope, whose needs and entitlements are being considered and also longer term impacts and not just immediate fulfilment of desires. So really that, I guess, takes us to that question around the justice of seeking to use 
medical resources for the fulfilment of what for many people is regarded as a, a reproductive preference for a particular kind of child using a particular kind of technology as opposed to using our limited, always limited medical resources to meet more significant medical needs. Of course, even if we were to decide that, as many people do believe, that the need for uterus transplantation can be deemed to be a need, that doesn't automatically say anything about how it should be prioritised, what its priority rating is. So even if we get it on the table as as the meeting of a medical need, then uterus transplantation still poses the question of whether this medical need should be fulfilled at the expense of others. The concerns about resource allocation, uh, at the moment they're being quite well managed because given that the trials are quite small, I'm talking here about Australia, the surgeries are being done after hours, they're being done during the weekend and what would otherwise be empty theatres by surgical teams not otherwise involved elsewhere. But of course that is not a sustainable form of resource allocation as demand grows or even in the short term for that matter and it puts a, a stress on both the surgical teams involved and you know, the resources. So yeah, there are still many justice issues around resource allocation. And that model, of course, will only work with live donors because with deceased donors, you've got no control over when they come in. I mean, and depending on the the way in which the donors died, it might not be possible to delay the surgery. So you've got a whole other can of worms there, the deceased versus living donors. There really are. And the ischemic time for the deceased donor organs is, is longer than was initially thought. So we are able to keep those organs in a healthy state for quite a few more hours than we initially assumed. But still, yes, it's going to be hard to manage the resourcing of uterus transplantation when we pursue the deceased donor model, as I believe we we should and we are in, in Sydney, the team that I work with is. That brings me to, to, to an area I want to talk about. So the paper that you and I wrote a long time ago and, and a lot of your work is obviously serious academic scholarship, but now you've got your feet well and truly in the, in the, in the real world. You're getting your, so I'm mixing my metaphors. You're getting very involved with the actual practical aspects of it with the first clinical trial of uterus transplantation in Sydney. I'd be really interested in what you can say about what you're seeing arising now in in those roles so that you can speak about without breaching any confidentiality and whether they differ very much and whether they're changing your mind about the, the rightness or wrongness of uterus transplantation? Yeah, well, I mean, as I was sort of saying earlier, there are some of the early early identified ethical concerns that we are seeing as challenges going forward and others that seem quite readily able to be managed. I'm not sure if I mentioned, but the issue around expectation management is quite adequately managed with very extensive psychological and psychiatric testing and screening, at least with the trial that I work with. And that's not replicated everywhere, but I would only work with and I do provide only independent advice for them, but nevertheless, yeah, there is very extensive effort gone in there. But yes, some of the persisting challenges are aligned with what we initially envisaged and anticipated. So for donors in particular, the issues around full, fully informed decision making are actually really, really hard. We go to vast lengths to ensure that these donors, potential donors, would-be donors, have access to all the information. We hold nothing back in terms of the impact of the surgeries, which can be nine to ten hours long for the donor. It's not just a hysterectomy. It's a. It's not just a radical hysterectomy. It's a very large surgery, and the recovery is difficult. And there are risks around urological impacts, and we're seeing those recurringly across the world. What we find is that donors are highly motivated. Living, we're talking about 
obviously living donors here, and particularly when they're known donors, and particularly when they're maternal donors, we're finding that there's a very strong emotional commitment to doing this, and they're very highly motivated, and it really highlights in very practical ways the way that there can be sort of an information gap, if we can call it that, between what they're informed about in writing, and what they later say, yes, no, I know I was warned that this could be a risk, but I didn't really stop and think what it would be like to, you know, have to have a, a, a catheter for weeks afterwards or would have other, you know, ureter damage or, and other things that might need repair surgery. These are, I'm not talking specifically about the Australian context, I'm talking in general across the world, that these are t- proving to be quite common effects for donors. Ensuring that potential donors have a realistic sense of the post-op impacts is just really, really challenging and perhaps insurmountable because it's such such high motivation. And that's talking about the known donor case. But the other area where there's some unanticipated challenges is around non-directed donation, where they're not known to each other, and someone comes forward and wants to be a donor, and a recipient's there, and they don't have a donor. And my work on the Data Security and Safety Monitoring Board is all around looking at the candidates and just saying yes or no to whether particular recipient and donor pairings can be approved. And so, you know, we're finding a surprising number of people coming forward and registering and being eligible for being non-directed donors. They want to donate their uterus for a range of reasons and, and they don't have a particular recipient in mind. So that's raising up for us some challenges around, for us internationally but also in Australia, some challenges around the criteria that prominent and prevalent across the world, which most protocols require that the donor be perimenopausal or very early in menopause, that they've already had children, that so they're paris rather than non-paris, so they've got a proven uterus as it's sometimes called, that they've finished with their own parent parenting or family plans. What we're seeing in, across the world and in Australia is that some people are coming forward, they're very altruistically motivated, they want to donate their uterus, they don't have a, a donor, but they're younger. They might be in their late 30s or their mid 30s or their early 40s. They don't want to have children. They've never wanted to have children. We have to be careful ourselves in making decisions around eligibility that we don't import all those pronatalist assumptions that we're worried about and saying, well, you're only 30, you can't possibly know that you don't later want a child or you know you haven't had a child so we don't know if your uterus will work and we're not willing to take it from you if we don't know. So I think there's definitely shift around those requirements, those eligibility criteria for donors. And so we've got challenges around assessing their motivation. Why are they doing this? Do they really understand that it's not just a hysterectomy? The way that you know we might offer this, compensate for that risk, is to say to anyone that comes forward, we w- we're willing to do, at least in this early stage, we're still in the research trial stage, of course, we're willing to I- arrange a hysterectomy for you. If it's a hysterectomy you seek, you just want to stop menstruating and you're not going to have children, we-, we can look at arranging a regular hysterectomy me for you but a uterus transplantation donation is not a regular hysterectomy yet we're still seeing plenty of people that are like well I don't want to have children but I know people do and I really want to help other people to have children if that's what they want to do so that they don't want just a regular hysterectomy they want to be a donor a uterus transplant donor. That's interesting I remember the suspicion with which the first altruistic kidney donors and partial liver donors were kind of regarded and and the very careful psychological screening that went on there but you know removal of one kidney for donation is a far, far simpler procedure. It's like a walk in the park compared to a a uterus donation. Um, Just briefly before we finish, where do you plan to go to next with your research? Yeah, so 
I guess in terms of academic research or scholarly publications, writing around some of these issues and the need for to take a more careful attitude towards some of our inclusion and exclusions criteria. That's one thing that's on the boil. I've got a paper ready for submission around the maternal model in particular, which I really do have concerns about, where mothers donate to daughters. And I, I would love to see us move away from that model, which has tended to be quite prominent. I'd like us to move away from that if possible. And if not, then at least ensuring certain eligibility criteria are widened to help sort of minimise the sort of perception that the mother's the most obvious choice for a donor and the ideal choice. So those are a couple of areas where I'm working at the moment. But I'm also with the International Society of Uterus Transplant Ethics Committee. We are developing international guardrails, an international guardrails document that we will be publishing at some point. And with the Transplant Society of Australia and New Zealand, I'm helping them to develop guidelines in relation to deceased donation in particular, which will also be published at some point. So that's still research, but maybe not will not find its way into scholarly journals, but perhaps more wider guidelines documents. Sounds like you've got plenty on your plate and and it's not going away anytime soon from the sound of it. Thanks, Mayanna. You know, it's a really interesting topic. It's close to my heart from the transplant side of it. And like many of the topics we discuss on the show, it's complicated. That's all we've got time for. If you wish to read Mayanna's paper, there are links in the show notes. Thanks for listening. This is a Macquarie University Ethics and Agency Research Centre podcast. And I'm your host, Distinguished Professor Wendy Rogers.